So one of the difficult things about preaching through the Gospels is that much of it is descriptive rather than prescriptive. And what I mean by that is that the, it's a story that describes, it's descriptive of ancient events, but it, it does not always give prescribed actions. It's not prescriptive. It doesn't just tell us what to do. Uh, it, it doesn't tell us what to do. It just tells us what happened. Okay? Descriptive, not prescriptive. So, so as it relates to preaching, um, I have to take a descriptive passage and preach, exhort, urge, try to get you all to do more than just listen. Right? Preaching should lead to action. Right? When, when we walk out of here, we should have action items. But when no prescription is given, which is often the case with the Gospels, no commands, no practical application, at the very least, what I'm called to do is evoke belief. Evoke belief. And John himself in this passage instructs us that this is what he wants. This is why John writes this. He will say, he who saw it, talking about what we're getting ready to read, he who saw it has borne witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. So that's my task this morning. I'm going to show you that these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled, and that you might believe it. Right? Believe it, and I mean really believe it, because we know belief is more than just an, an intellectual scent. Uh, belief means it, it's calling us to do things, calling us to action. Right? Faith is dead without works. Belief is dead without action. Okay? So we're going to look this morning at John chapter 19, verses 16 through 7. These are the words of God. As such, let's give attention to them this morning, church. It's actually 16b. It's starting in mid-verse. Um, so, so they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the Skull, the place of the Skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified near, was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic and Latin and Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, I have written what I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven into one piece from the top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his sister, mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciples whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour he took the disciple to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, 
It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. The word of God for his people. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at such a familiar passage, probably all of us in here have heard these things before. We've had them described to us. They've entered our ears. But Lord, I pray that you would bring these old truths to uh, to us with a new freshness. Lord, help us to recognize that there's something deeper here more than descriptive acts. Help us to realize that there is a faith here to be had about what we believe these things mean. So help us, Lord. We pray that you'd give us eyes to see in this text how you really are fulfilling the scripture in your son Jesus. Give us ears to hear about how these things affect our lives and cause our belief to be brought to action. Impress us today by your Holy Spirit. Work upon us by the same word or same Holy Spirit that inspired these words. Inspire our hearts this morning, we pray. We ask it all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So many times... When we, and I say we, I mean modern day Christians, modern day evangelicals, when we read the Old Testament, we don't consider how it relates to the New Testament. Now, not every time we do this, but a lot of times we don't get that connection when we're reading the Old Testament. We have a tendency to believe that the Old Testament was a different way of salvation, and then Jesus came with a new way to replace it. So we kind of have two different systems. And when we do this, we start to think of the Old Testament and the New Testament as two entirely different things. They are divided, not one. What we'll do is we'll read through passages like the Psalms, like what we read just a minute ago in Psalm 22:18. That's where it was quoted from, Psalm 22:18, and it'll say things like, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And we'll keep trucking along and assume that this is just the psalmist uh, writing about his emotional state because he feels everyone is against him. Uh, he's saying, my enemies are everywhere. And we might think back to David running away from Saul or something of that sort. And at best, we might tuck it away in our back pocket as we're reading through the Psalms to say, maybe one day um, I'll have a hard time and I'll need to go and consult the scripture. Remember that this is something that the, the saints of God have always done, right? Well, kind of misery loves his company kind of thing. I'm not saying anything's wrong with that, but we'll, we'll remember that Psalm to say, well, David had a hard time. I'm having a hard time. And that's the connection. Right. That's how this is fulfilled. It's fulfilled in me because we're both in misery together. And let's be honest, there isn't anything inherently wrong with this. It's not bad to consult the Psalms in that way. The problem is just that we're not taking this far enough. If that's how we read the Old Testament, we're not taking it far enough. We are settling for a shadow of what the scripture is really pointing to, because in our text today, we'll see this is fulfilled in Christ Jesus at his crucifixion. We don't think enough. As we're reading through the Old Testament, this must be fulfilled in Christ. 
This must be fulfilled in Christ. We look at the Old Testament law as as if it was some kind of sufficient system in and of itself to save individuals. Well, they had their law, and that's how they were saved. And then we have the New Testament. That's how we're saved. The the law seems quite comprehensive as you read the Old Testament, doesn't it? Like, oh, they have all the stuff that they need to have their sins removed for them. Until you get to the New Testament, and you start reading things like, and Romans where it will say that the law was powerless to save. And that Jesus did what the law was powerless to do. Jesus did what the law couldn't do. We needed something more. It needed to be fulfilled. Okay. So my point here is that we tend to see the Old Testament and New Testament as two separated systems. Sometimes we'll kind of link them together, but we, we usually don't see them very linked together as one story. The Old Testament being the sacrificial system that saved people through the blood of bulls and goats. And then we have the New Testament being the one-time sacrifice of Jesus that saves people through his blood. So everyone post-Jesus is saved by Jesus, but what about the other guys? Blood of bulls and goats, maybe. Hebrews says you can't do that. Okay, This is all wrong if we see these as two separate things. The Old Testament and New Testament, yes, they have their differences, but they are not substantially, and I mean that word technically, they are not substantially, or you might say essentially different. They present one kind of salvation, and that is by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. Right? That's the only way. And when we learn to view the scriptures as a whole, instead of two halves, only then can we really start to grasp the significance of the sacrifice of Jesus, of how this is actually the pinnacle of scripture. This is actually a really big high point, not the beginning low point. Okay, So what we're going to see this morning is, through this text, how Jesus is the fulfillment of scripture, because that's really John's point here. That's the thing that he really, really wants you to see this morning. Three times in this one passage, John alludes to this vital connection between the old and the new. Did you catch it? In verse 24, he says, this was to fulfill the scripture, which says, and he goes on. Verse 28, it says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture. Verse 36, for these things took place that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Okay, so that's what John's trying to show us here, that this is a fulfillment of Scripture. When Jesus died on the cross, he wasn't starting something entirely new. He was fulfilling, we might say, finishing something very old, Okay, ancient, in fact, something from the very beginning. So let's take a moment to evaluate what John is describing here and what it is he wants us to believe. What is the descriptive thing that he wants us to believe about this passage? Well, we already talked about verse 24, didn't we? But when we, when we quoted it the first time, I don't know if you noticed, but I read that from the Psalms, not from John's Gospel. So I was actually making reference to the Old Testament passage. And when you read the psalmist, it appears that there was nothing more to say. We would have never assumed that it needed fulfilled unless, unless we had heard what John told us, right? John tells us something that actually brings us the fulfillment to that passage. If you didn't have the New Testament, ask yourself this. When you're reading through the Psalms, if completely New Testament were removed, would you think about Jesus? You probably wouldn't. Right? You would be thinking about the psalmist and his experience and what was going on in his life. Yet John says, I write these things so that you might see that Jesus fulfills that. In other words, if you read either passage in isolation, you're only getting half of the story. right? If, if Jesus dying on the cross and doing all these things fulfills Scripture, you might say, what Scripture? We have to consult the old. Oh, the old. It's back and forth. It's one big story. Okay, so there's verse 24. There's the first instance that John's drawing your attention to. What about verse 28? Verse 28 says this. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, 
said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Okay, knowing that all was finished. What was finished? What was finished? What what did he say was finished in verse 30? He says, it is finished. What is he talking about? Well, obviously, Jesus is finishing something that has already been started. He didn't say uh, right before he gave up his last breath, it is started. Right? No, he says, it is finished. He's completing. He's finishing. He's accomplishing something that needed to be fulfilled. Right? There was something that Jesus was doing here. And then we read in verse 36, all these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. What scriptures exactly are we talking about here? All this took place, it says, John says, that the scripture might be fulfilled. What is finished? What is fulfilled? Okay, let's look at some of those Old Testament passages and read them in context a little bit that will help illuminate this. So if we if we turn back in our Bibles, let's look firstly at Psalm 69, 20 through 21. Psalm 69, 20 through 21. You can turn there if you want. I'm going to read the whole thing, and I'm going to read it pretty slow so that we can catch all this. But... If you want to turn there, you can underline some of the things I want to emphasize. Psalm 69, 20 through 21 says this. Reproaches have, underline this, broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, I have found none. And here's where the quotation comes from. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Okay, remember, this is the Psalms. This isn't gospel saying this. So this fulfillment might actually kill two birds with one stone because William Stroud, a medical doctor in 1847, had a book where he argued on the physical cause of the death of Christ. You may have heard this before. He argued in his book that the cause of Jesus' death may have been that he had, from a scientific point of view, a ruptured heart which would answer the question about the blood and the water. Typically, when you stick someone's side, blood and water doesn't come out, right? Well, he observed that patients under extreme mental agony sometimes had ruptured hearts. And when the heart would rupture and that sack around the heart, it would be blood and water mixed together, and it would cause an immediate death. So if you were to, say, poke it with a spear, blood and water would actually pour out. Now, when I was hearing hearing that, I'm not a medical doctor, so I can't think too deeply about uh, all of that. But I have had some experiences that actually remind me of the story of Jesus and how all this relates together. I don't know if you guys have heard the story uh, in my family about Bo and Peep. Bo and Peep were lambs that we actually got, me and my brother got, on Easter one year as a gift for my parents. So we went to this sheep farm to get two sheep. My brother was going to get a ram, name it Bo. I was going to get a, a female uh, and a, a lamb and name it Peep. So we get our sheep. We're up in the back of the truck, and Braden's is just going nuts. Braden's my brother. Um, his is going crazy. It's kicking all over the place. It's just being super wild. And we notice that Peep, my sheep, is being very, very calm, not moving at all. And we just keep commenting, wow, Peep's being so good here. She, she is being so much better than Braden's sheep over there, bouncing around, bouncing off the walls. And we start to look at the farmer who's selling the sheep to us. He's looking a little funny. He's, he's, I see him kind of wave to my parents to come over and talk to them. He whispers something in their ear. And dad comes back and says, son, I think Peep's dead. Peep died because apparently lambs have a common, uh, a common medical condition where if they get really stressed – under extreme mental agony, their hearts will essentially rupture. They'll get a heart attack and die. And I couldn't help but think about sheep and how sheep have this happen to them. 
And then this medical doctor brings it back and says, no, this may have been actually what happened to Jesus on the cross. His heart may have ruptured because of extreme mental distress. So there's that. There's my experience saying, yeah, that's a thing that happens to sheep. Here's this medical doctor. And so the psalmist says, from a biblical point of view, reproaches have broken my heart so that I'm in despair. I looked for pity and comforters, but found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. So it appears that what began as the psalmist painting a simple emotional and metaphorical picture of his extreme mental state, it was inscribed through the ages and given to us, became a literal physical reality in Jesus Christ. Jesus physically went through all of these things that he's kind of poetically writing through in the Psalms. He went through that. So the shadowy prayer became an incarnational reality in Jesus Christ. And John wants you to see this. He wants you to see that, yeah, John, or the the psalmist was talking poetically. He was talking prayerfully, and he was going and experiencing something, but not in the sense that Jesus did. Jesus takes this to a whole new level. He fulfills it, in fact. He brings the deepest significance and meaning that you could ever imagine to what the psalmist was going through and to what you're going through, too. That's how it relates back to us. Or consider the most significant of these fulfillments that we see in verse 36. So we've looked at three of these already. Here's kind of a fourth. Not one of his bones was broken. Not one of his bones was broken. This fulfills scripture is what John says. Okay, how? Where where do you think in scripture that this might be quoted from? Not one of his bones was broken. Well, the psalmist maybe. That's, That's where we've seen a lot of them already. Maybe it was the psalms. Was it the psalmist praising God that not one of his bones was broken? Well, some think so because Psalm 3420 says he keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. And and I don't want to discredit that, but the context in that psalm is that through the afflictions of the, although the afflictions of the righteous are many, the Lord delivers them out of them all. Okay, you've probably heard that scripture quoted before. Someone's going through deep suffering and someone will quote Psalm 3420 uh, that talks about the Lord delivering the afflictions uh, of the people because of the righteous, right? So God's going to deliver you. You're going to get out of this scenario. But church, remember that at this point in the story, Jesus is dead. He's already dead, okay? And also remember that John stressed the point in verse 31 to tell us that this is the day of preparation. Okay, this is where the Old Testament gets really, really important. Okay, it's the day of preparation. Notice that that P is capitalized. If you look in your Bible at verse 31, that day, preparation, that P, it's capitalized because this was a special day. It was a special day. It wasn't just say we're getting ready for some stuff. No, this was a special day to prepare, not just because the Sabbath was approaching, but this was a holy day approaching. What was this preparation for? It was the preparation for the Passover. Passover was about to come. And what is the Passover? Well, the Passover was the covenant meal instituted by God in the Old Testament where a sacrificial firstborn lamb would be slain on behalf of the people instead of their firstborn son. You remember the the Exodus story, right, where the people of Israel are enslaved to the Egyptians, and God institutes the the Passover where he says if if you will – Take this lamb, slay it for your family, paint the blood over your doorpost. You will be passed over when the death angel comes. But if you don't, your firstborn son will be the sacrifice that we require of you. So all the families were called to do this, to to cover for them, you might say, to pass over them. So here is Jesus, dead on the cross, on the day of preparation for the Passover, this day that the Jews consistently celebrated all throughout history. And John wants to see that somehow this fulfills Scripture because not one of his bones have been broken. You starting to see it? 
Okay? John is showing you that there's something about what Jesus' death means, not just descriptive. Yes, it is that, but he wants you to see what the death means. And here again is why reading the Old Testament and New Testament in conjunction is vital to our understanding of what is going on in Scripture. Now, consider these two scriptures in light of John's proclamation that Jesus' bones are not broken and that this fulfills Scripture. The first is from Exodus 12. This is uh, at the first institution of the Passover, speaking about the preparations for the sacrificial lamb, what you should do with this lamb that you're going to slaughter. This is the first time God did this in Exodus 12. It says, It shall be eaten in one house, speaking of the lamb, you shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. Then again, God reminds Israel of the Passover requirements in Numbers 9.12. They shall leave none of it till the morning, nor break any of its bones. According to all the statute for the Passover, they shall keep it. So part of keeping of the Passover was preparing the sacrificial lamb. And in the preparations and the death, it specifically says, don't break its bones. Okay? When John says that, scripture, that, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he's showing us that Jesus fulfills that role as the Passover lamb. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus doesn't replace the sacrificial system, church. He fulfills it. Jesus is where it was all leading to. Jesus is what Israel has been waiting for. He is the anointed king of the Jews. He is the one that the inscription says, not he said he was, he was the king of the Jews. He is the king of the Jews. He is the better David. He is the better sacrifice. He is the better covenant. But all, remember this, all this points back to the Old Testament. This is the pinnacle of the Old Testament. This isn't something entirely new. It's not the abolishment of the Old Testament scripture. Jesus specifically says it's not. He says that I came not to abolish the law and prophets, the scripture, that's the way that they talked about it. I came not to abolish the law and prophets, but to fulfill it. Jesus is the one salvation plan for all of time, for all of the world. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Now, let's turn our attention to the final fulfillment that John points out in verse 37. As we come to the, the end of this passage, it says, and again, another scripture says, here again, John showing for the fourth time, they will look on him whom they have pierced. They will look on him whom they have pierced. This is a quotation from Zechariah this time. Zechariah 12, 10 through 13, 1 says this. You can turn there in your Bibles or you can just listen. It doesn't matter. Just make sure you're paying attention to the part that John quotes and how it connects back to our story. It says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, this is what God is saying, on whom they have pierced, there's the quotation, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him, catch this, as one weeps over a firstborn. Think Passover. Think about the firstborn lamb. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad-Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn for each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves, and the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves, and the family of the Shemites by itself and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself and their wives by themselves. Catch this. On that day, on that day, there shall be a fountain 
opened for the house of David and of the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and unrighteousness. A fountain opened up for them to sin, uh, to cleanse them from sin and uncleanliness. So let us ask again, church, what was finished when Jesus said, it is finished, and then bowed his head and gave up his spirit in verse 30? It was the plan of salvation. It was Jesus being the Savior of the world. This is the work of salvation that no other thing could do. The blood of bulls and goats could never do it. The law could not save you. So Jesus had to do what the law could not do. All of the law and the prophets is fulfilled in Jesus, the Passover land. And John wants you to see that that crucifixion is the pinnacle of the life of Israel. What began with Abraham has now been finished and fulfilled by Jesus. That fountain opened up for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanliness was the water and the blood flowing from the side of Christ after he was pierced for their transgressions. That is the work of Jesus. That's what he's doing. And John testifies to us that this is true. Now I want you to think about that. That is true. That really happened. That, that incarnationally worked its way out in history. You could look back and talk about the events and see all, how it, uh, the Bible describes that all this happened. Uh, but how often do we think about it being really real to us? Right? We always talk about, well, Jesus died for my sins. And it's almost like this like phys- philosophical quote, Jesus died for my sins. Not thinking about how this had real tangible implications. Jesus actually died. He actually had his side pierced, and blood and water came out. And I want us to think about that today as it relates to us. So as we close, I want to remind you all of our tendency that we have to remove the past from the present. Right? We get disconnected sometimes. Just as we sometimes disconnect the Old Testament from the New Testament, missing the real fulfillment, missing the whole point, we also disconnect the real facts of Jesus' death from our own experience and thereby miss the fulfillment. We miss the application to us and see how Jesus' death might actually come to me in real-time history and realize that this is one whole story. Right? I'm part of this story, the story that Jesus has made for us, This the story of the gospel. I am actually living out the implications of the cross. I'm his hands and his feet. We talk about that, don't, don't we? But we don't really think about how that really connects back to the cross historically. Not just metaphorically, but historically. Jesus died so that we might be those hands and feet. Jesus died so that we might be able to go through these hard trials in life, experience deep, deep suffering, and recognize that the true fulfillment, the true point that we should be looking back to is the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ. So let's press the question again. Do we really believe what John says? In our practice, in our life. And what does it mean or what does it look like for you to believe that John's telling the truth? That he's not just giving some uh, um, uh, euphemisms. He's not just giving some metaphorical or philosophical quotes to just kind of help us out of our place. No, he's talking about the truth. He witnessed it. He saw it happen. What does that practically look like in your life that John's testimony is true? That Jesus is the Passover lamb that was slain. Ask yourself, does his death cover your household? Think about that. Think about the cross of Jesus through the lens of the Passover, which John is calling you to do. Has your faith connected to his sacrifice so that when the angel of the Lord comes looking for a sacrifice, he passes over your household? Or are you ignoring the Passover instructions and waiting to see how it might happen or how it might play out like the Egyptians did? Do you remember how that worked out for them? It wasn't very good. In the day of the Egyptians... 
They decided they weren't going to follow the covenant God of Israel. They were not going to slay a lamb. They were not going to paint the blood over their household. They weren't going to go through all that stuff because they thought that they had a better way. And the result was great weeping, lamentation, mourning like the loss of a firstborn. That's what Zechariah says. And Zechariah prophesies about an event looking forward to the cross of Jesus. Right? Think about the implications of how that comes to us today. Think about what it means to follow Jesus. For those who believe, the fountain that is opened up for you cleanses you from sins. That, that blood and water flowing from the side of Christ, that is your salvation. That, that, that is the proof to you that you are truly forgiven of your sins. You are washed. You are clean. You are sanctified. You are able to walk as a new creation in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we need your help. We come to these passages in the gospel. We've read them so many times. But Lord, I pray that you would make them fresh to us. Help us to live out tangibly, practically the things that you describe for us. As we catch the real meaning of your death today. As we catch that you are our Passover lamb, that you do take away the sin of the world, that you are our sacrifice, that you are doing the work of salvation for us. Lord, help us to have real, tangible works flow out from this. Keep us faithful to you, Lord, and press upon our souls the reality of the gospel, the reality that Jesus died for our sins in history. Lord, we ask these things in the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. We now come to the Lord's table as we partake. I'd like to remind you um, and maybe just illuminate this to you. Maybe you've never thought of it before, but some people actually connect the pouring of the blood and the water from the side of Christ to the two sacraments of the church, baptism being the water and the Lord's Supper being uh, the blood. So as we come to the, the sacrament that he has ordained for us, he's told us to do this, help us. Uh, maybe this would help us to think about it, connecting it to the cross and thinking of it that way. That these two sacraments that the Lord has given to us are really our salvation. It's the tangible means of grace, of connecting it intellectually in our minds and our hearts back to the reality of what Christ has already done 